I think the first thing I want to check in with you on, if you're okay, you've now read... Keep in mind, originally this was not two books. This was one scroll. And the reason we have it in two books is because an animal's skin is simply not long enough to contain all of this writing. Or were it, it would be prohibitively heavy to stitch it together. Does, Does that sort of make sense? So this is cut in half by convenience only. I'm wondering if you have questions, reactions, or comments from the Chronicle, whether first or second. It was hard not to get bogged down in the detail because I kept thinking, you know, there might be something in the detail, but then I thought, I don't know. I was, it just, it's a difficult read in that it's, there's so much. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that specifically. Did anyone notice a difference in detail between one Chronicles and two Chronicles? Now remember, it's one book, but did, did you notice a different level of detail? And yeah. if so, what, what, did you, what stood out to you? Which one is more of a story? The second one. The second portion seems more of a story. Fewer genealogical lists, fewer um, names of all officials. Thank you. Thank you. I, I mean, I agree with that. But it's quite a description of the temple. Quite a description of the temple. As long as you know what a cube is. So did you feel like, when you say that, did you feel like one chronicles or two chronicles, did, did one or the other describe the temple more? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, when we get to Solomon, described more. Right. Okay. Well, it described the building of it, but the first one, there was quite a description of... The acquisition yeah, of the goods. Have, yeah, like a legal what document. he wanted. What he wanted, and who was going to be working there, and who they were related right. to. Right. Yeah. So different kinds of lists, but both, both very temple-focused. I think that's very fair. Yeah. A cubit, by the way, <laughs> a cubit is this sort of funny measurement. It's 18 inches, but not really. It's the distance from your elbow to your fingertip. Of course, you know that varies according to how long your arm is. Um, sort of like when you measure a horse in hands, a hand is four inches, although not all hands are created equal. So you sort of start to wonder whose hands were used to, to measure the horse and whose arm made the cubit. It's like, isn't the British foot the size, was the size of somebody's foot? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's why it's called that. And of course, all feet vary, yeah. right? I mean, um, it, we, we have standardized it, and maybe it became standardized, but, but we don't know when that happened, if that makes sense. So these can be approximate measures, or they could be very precise. It depends on what you choose, because we don't necessarily have evidence for that. Does that make sense? I, the only thing I, I, I had to do is I had to go to maps. Yeah. I, I, it helps me if I geographically know where it is that this it is in this part of so right <laughs> going from reading to, to the maps and where these people were moving and where who who are who are they now? What, you know, what makes yeah. them that, that, I, I did a lot of that too. And also like to me it seemed like when I was reading <clears throat> we were talking about this immense yes. area right. filled with these 
captains of hundreds and captains of hundred thousands and yeah. millions, gazillion soldiers. And it really wasn't that big an area. Right. So I'm like, how did I, first of all, how did I, and I was going back to, you know, you saying Jerusalem was only four temple blocks. How did all these people fit, where did they even have room to have all these wars that seemed to be like every other day? Yes. <laughs> um, you know, two of them started out with, in the spring when it was time for kings to go to war, and I'm like, what, what, what was it just because it was the weather? Yes, that's right. Well, I mean, the summer is very hot. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to go to war in the summer. You don't. And, and you know, you just have to keep in mind, right, that the biggest defeat to Operation Barbarossa when the Germans were headed to Moscow, the Soviets' most competent generals were General Cold and General Winter, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because in October, the oil in the tanks froze, and that was the end of the Blitzkrieg. So you just, like seasons matter, and, and you know the Germans were wearing their summer uniforms, and the temper was minus thirty, yeah. right? <laughs> so That's it really stalled the war effort. Yeah. So consider then, you know, you've got people carrying ridiculously heavy gear, and all of a sudden it's a hundred degrees in a desert climate with yeah. no readily available oases. Yeah. yeah, you just you'd rather not fight in, in such conditions, if that makes sense. I got the feeling that when they mention a lot of people, that it's more a message than it is an actual number. We, we can make choices on that, although, you know, consider what we're talking about size-wise. This is what you're mentioning, getting oriented, right? This, this, this territory of Israel is roughly the size of Rhode Island. <laughs> And when you read it, you may say, oh, the, the wealthiest, the biggest, huge area. No, no, neither of those, right? Egypt is immensely bigger. Mm -hmm. and, and we're thinking Egypt runs all the way down to the Nile, all the way down the Nile, right? Which is, is that the longest river on earth or is that the Amazon? It's the Amazon. So Nile's second, right? I think. One of the, it's in the top five. That's extremely... <laughs> It flows north. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and then Egypt proper doesn't just end today at the Aswan Dam, right? It goes down into Ethiopia and Kush. So it's important to remember Egypt was bigger then than it is now. And then when we talk about Mesopotamia, we're really talking about the cradle of civilization, an immense place that has not one but two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, much bigger and stronger than the Jordan. And, and Mesopotamia includes also uh, what we call modern-day Syria. And so the, 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 the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires, so much bigger land-wise and therefore population-wise and resource-wise than Israel. Right? So we can get a very skewed perspective and think Israel was like the United States. And it, it isn't. To put it in perspective, if you're thinking about the United States, think that Egypt and um, Mesopotamia are 48 of the states. And then Israel represents two little New England states. Um, Area-wise, population-wise, and resource-wise. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah. So those numbers were exaggeration. You know... <laughs> This is a really hard thing when we talk, and, and I, this is a good way to just, if you don't mind me exiting, we're going to come back really fast. This is one of those hard things we talked about the very first week that, that I want to be extremely sensitive to 
for a lot of good reasons, which is talking about um, the level of the Bible, and really the word is the inspiration. And again, the question is this phrase, word of God. Now remember, um, according to the Gospel of John, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. And sometimes we forget that the Word of God is not the Bible, it's Jesus. All right, so this is really important. The Bible did not pre-exist the world. Jesus did, right? So the Word of God is Jesus. Now, we do say the Bible is inspired. In fact, to become a priest in the Episcopal Church, to serve on a vestry, you have to say you believe that the Bible contains all things necessary for salvation all things necessary for salvation. But you don't have to say the Bible contains all things necessary for everything in your life. You know, see, these are a little bit different things. Now, now I have to be really careful here, and I, and I want to be honoring. You know, we talked about this uh, three weeks ago. Inspired means it's sort of been breathed into, and we're thinking about the breath of God, and we're thinking about larger life, right? So the Bible has is very... And this is, if you don't mind me saying this, I mean, I think, I think what every Christian should be able to say, right, is the Bible has connected human beings to God and one another in special ways for a long, long time. And that may sound like I'm selling it short, but, I, but I'm trying not to. I'm trying to come up with a universal way that we use Scripture. Um, only about, a, uh, not even a hundred years ago, this word showed up that says, remember, the Bible is inerrant. It has no errors, factually or grammatically. Um, that idea came out of Princeton Theological Seminary uh, around the time of the First World War, and it was propagated by some oil barons from Texas. They sort of funded that campaign. <laughs> and, and, and listen, I, of course what they're trying to say, right, is that the Bible is reliable. It is trustworthy. And, and that's helpful. Right? The, the problem I told you with inerrancy, though, right, is, is you sort of say, well, if there's one error, factual or otherwise, then the whole thing's useless. I mean, it really isn't either or. And, and the hard thing for us is we don't have the original manuscripts. We don't have the original scrolls. Could there be copy errors? Almost every scholar will tell you yes. The other problem with inerrancy, and this is a problem, if you really want to say the Bible's inerrant, then you had better be able to read Greek and Hebrew. Otherwise, you're not even reading that. You're reading somebody else's, not just translation, but interpretation. Right? And, and I will tell you the interesting thing about having grown up that the Bible was inerrant, I was very happy to read it in English. But, but that's, that doesn't even make sense. You, do you understand what I'm saying? If the Bible's inerrant in Greek and Hebrew, we should be learning Greek and Hebrew. I hope that's okay to say. Uh, um, and, and what I want to... Really, the thing is, I, I think there's a much stronger position than inerrancy. And this, I think, is maybe throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There's a much stronger position, which is that the Bible's infallible. That is, you can rely on it, especially when it talks about truth with a capital T. Right? It doesn't make mistakes in representing truth. 
And, and, and the reason I like that position, right, is I think truth is actually extremely complicated. Extremely complicated. I mean, think about, again, if you're a physician, your oath is, above all, do no harm. Now, that means a lot of different things to different people. Do you sustain somebody on life support who has no chance of recovery? And some people would equate that with doing no harm, and some people would equate that with doing harm. Hard to know what capital T truth is in a place like that. So you have to, I think, have a continued conversation. I hope that wasn't offensive, what I just said there. I mean, again, I, I just, I think it's really difficult to separate quality and quantity of life. I think we're still trying to get our heads around, you know, is life just for quantity of years or is it about quality, you know? Um, when we talk about T, truth, one thing we can say is, as I told you, we could choose to read, say, Genesis chapter 1, and we could say God made the world in six days, and we could choose to read that as literal and scientific, which would make the world 6,000 years old. We could choose to do that. We can simultaneously choose that, hey, this is actually trying to inform us how we got where we are, who's behind it, and what our relationship to God and the world is about. Uh, those aren't necessarily uh, different things, but they could be. I mean, these are choices that we make, right? So, so again, I think when we talk about inspiration and what it reveals, we re are we talking about quantity? That is, are we talking about fact? Or are we talking about quality? Which, again, I, I, I would say are claims about truth. And this is going to sound really strange, and I said this a few years ago, but I had a professor early on who said to me, it doesn't have to be true to be the truth. And I think about that, having recently reread To Kill a Mockingbird. It's not true, that didn't happen, but yes, it did. Yes. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? Yes. So even though that book is not factually correct, it represents our reality just quite well, you know? And, and that's the difference between fact and truth. Just, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. I, I'm not going to contend with you that the Bible's not factually true. I don't want to come and say, listen, here's a mistake, here's a mistake, here's a mistake. I, I think, again, when we think about inspiration and infallibility and, and relationship with God, the question is, what's the book trying to tell us? What did it mean? So when you hear me say, like, I'm not really sure the population of the earth supports all these people, I'm dipping into the fact language. But I think more important is to say, what are these numbers of people trying to represent biblically? And we talked a little bit about that last week, that there's special numbers in the Bible, like 7 and 40 and 12. Some of those are lost on us. Some of them we don't maintain. Um, that's part of it. Remember that this book is definitely talking about a golden age. It's talking about the high times that we need to get back to. Um, and if I asked you what both books talk about more than anything, I hope you would say it's not the people. There's one theme that seems to show up in these books more than any other. These two, Chronicles, one, or, one and two. I could ask you what you think it is. <laughs> what do you think it is? 
and follow God and talk to Him and ask Him first, then you're blessed. But if you disregard Him, then you're not. So one is, when you follow God, you get a reward. When you stray, you get punished. And that was really clear in Second Chronicles. Really clear in Two Chronicles. And there's a specific way to follow God. There's one thing that is more important in following God than all others. Did you notice it? Worshipping where? I know I'm, I'm kind of trying to extract, quote-unquote, the right answer from you. Um, I don't think there's a wrong answer. But, but, but notice what happens over and over again is when the kings are disobedient, it's because they're praying at places other than the temple. The best kings get rid of all those places and only pray at the temple. You're a mediocre king if you pray to God in places outside the temple, but you're praying to God. You're a bad king if you pray to other gods. You're the best king if you get rid of all the other places and there's only the temple. Uh, by the way, what Kathy said is, is really fantastic. There's a fantastic, uh, there's a, a fancy word for this. It's called the Deuteronomistic History. You'll notice in it, like, Deuteronomy is there. Deutero means second, and nomos means law, so it's the second law. And if you've read it before, Deuteronomy is pretty much the same thing you just read in Exodus and Leviticus smashed up, told in slightly different words, right? The way this works is, um, you have faith in God, you get blessed, and I don't mean like you feel happy, I mean like you prosper, that was another thing, the, the amount of gold and silver and jewels that were moving around. Yeah, it's a lot of that, isn't it? Just giving it to each other all the time. Here, take this. Here, take that. Like, yeah. Easy to do in good times. So we'll talk about quantity in a second. Um, so you notice the trend there. Blessed people, it seems like they really easily forget to be faithful. Yeah. And so this is this word apostate or apostasy. They turn away. They, they, they adopt the practices of foreign people. And then, of course, what happens is they get cursed and punished. And then they repent and have faith in God. And then they get blessed. And then they do it again and again and again. Right? That, that, that's another theme in the books. But... I would tell you, my read of it is more than anything, the faith element is related to temple worship here. And we talked about this last week. You know, here, here's the rough timeline. You, you can tell, you know, these books could not have been written, I guess they could be written as they happened, but I don't think so. Because look where the book ends. Two Chronicle in, ends here. When Cyrus lets the people go back, and do you know what they do when they go back to Israel? They build another temple. <laughs> and perhaps what the book is trying to say is, that new temple's your hope. So that you don't end up in Babylon again, right? So direct your worship at that temple, be faithful in doing it, and you won't be in exile again. Learn your lesson. 
Those who don't learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. That could be a theme of Chronicles, but pointed at temple worship. If I'm misrepresenting, let me know. But, but again, I, I, I don't know if the book necessarily says that. It does a little bit, but, but, but as I read it, we get, a lot of, we get a lot of description about temple. Because we travel a lot and we've gone into all kinds of different temples, Hindu yeah. places that that are not Christian, mm-hmm. and the sense to me, the sense of peace and tranquility and respect um, are there also. Yeah, and 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 so that is transformative. You know, where people, that because people gather together in that place for that purpose. Yeah. And it's, it's very beautiful. So it's guys really, that was smart thinking on God's part of the writer. I mean, that is, seemed like the right thing. So this is first temple. This is the first temple, yes. And it seems to me as I read, read through this, I think it, at least in here, they talked about a 300-year span where a lot of these, a lot of this was taking place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also appeared to me that the temple itself went through a lot of, of, of not physically tearing it down all the way to the ground, mm-hmm. but they went in and took stuff. A lot out. of renovations, a lot of looting. Yeah. Over and over again. Yep, that's right. That's right. So it was kind of a, a, a moving, um, an evolving um, space, if you will. Um, and it was, and I guess as, as Kathy said, you know, when you were doing right, you were in the temple, and the temple was in good shape. When you weren't, people were taking things out of the temple. And yeah, I think, I think that's very fair. I have a question. Please. It's less about... It's okay. It's at one point in in um, five two. It says to bring the ark out of the out of the city of David, which is Zion. Mm-hmm. Okay, to the temple. Where was the city of David if it wasn't the temple and grounds? And what is Zion? All right. So so a couple of things um, that are helpful to differentiate and. You know, you get different stories on, on, on some of this. So I, if I miss, I'm trying to address all of the things in my head and I might miss specifically what you want. So just remind me, okay? Um, Zion is a place and it's an idea at the same time. Okay? So Jerusalem gets, gets called Mount Zion, but it, there's no Mount Zion in Jerusalem. <laughs> it, it's really sort of this... this word that sort of, it's sort of like Mount Olympus, except there is one of those, but it's sort of like, we could talk about Mount Olympus being a physical geography, but usually when that shows up in a Greek story, that's like the home of the gods, right? Which is sort of not really on earth, it's up in heaven. Yes, it's life after death. It's it's up in the sky, too, you know? So So Mount Zion is this physical place, but it also refers to, like, where God really lives up in heaven. 
So you, you see both. And that gets equated with Jerusalem sometimes, but other times Zion's not talking about the physical Jerusalem, it's talking about the heavenly one. Um, the other bit, right, is where the temple is. And, you know, when you read the Chronicles, the, the temple is in this sort of threshing floor where David encounters the angel of the Lord. And that's why he builds it there. But later it's Mount Moriah. And, and, and Mount Moriah is not a mountain. It's, it's a relative maximum. It's really a hill. And it, the tradition then goes back and says that's where Avram was going to sacrifice Yitzhak. All right, so this is where the Akedah happened. If you're Muslim, um, Mount Moriah... It either happened in Jerusalem and then the Kaaba was brought to Mecca or it happened in Mecca on the Kaaba and it was Ishmael instead of Yitzhak. Right? Those are the differences. But Mount Moriah should be the site of the Holy of Holies in the temple. Does that make sense? So those are two of the descriptions. A small hill, but the tradition says that's where Abraham was going to sacrifice Ishmael and that's exactly the place where David has this encounter with the angel of the Lord. Okay? If you go to Israel now, um, you can go on a tour of Jerusalem that may or may not include a tour of the city of David. And it's called that. So the city of David is four city blocks. It's the old, old city. Modern Jerusalem, much bigger than that. And there's a, there's a well, sorry, there's three Jerusalems. There's the city of David, there's the old city, and then there's the new city. The, the modern, the city of David, four blocks, and it's sort of around this wall that the Crusaders ended up building that now has the Armenian quarter and the Christian quarter and the Muslim quarter and the Jewish quarter. And that's like the old city of Jerusalem. And then there's the modern city, which is huge. That's outside of that walled area. Okay? Um, so, so, Lila, there's a little bit of in the first Jerusalem, that's the city of David. That's this little teeny bit. And then the temple sort of gets added on and incorporated. So it goes from the city of David to right outside the city of David. And then it's in the city of David now. <laughs> does, does that sort of make sense? So today the, um, uh, the mosque... Uh, the, the Dome of the Rock. Dome of the Rock. I don't know why I can't remember that term, but anyway, that sits on the same spot as the temples one and two. Well, not quite sure, but pretty close. If you're Jewish, you don't walk around that place at all because you could be walking over the Holy of Holies anywhere. It's not precision. Right? Some people conjecture, yes, the Dome of the Rock is built over Mount Moriah. And some people say it could be somewhere on the Temple Mount. So Jewish people aren't meant to go up there, if, if that makes sense. But the city of David then is in that area. The city of David, it's a little confusing. because to, and, and this is maybe helpful to tell you what happened to the temple. Is this okay? To, yeah, yes, sir. Uh, I understand that when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 67 and 69, and then, the, and then, the, and then, Adrian rebuilt the city. Yes. 
that uh, and the Jews weren't allowed back there for several hundred years. Yes. How do they know where the city of David was? Uh, Archaeology has excavated okay. the, the glasses walls. That's a particular way of building walls, and that's sort of where it's been found. Yeah, it's maybe helpful to tell you about a little bit about the temple itself uh, in, re related to this, this spot and what the temple did and what it didn't do. I'm over-functioning. Tell me to shut up and we can talk more about your questions, please, because this may not matter to you. Um, but remember, we get the measurements this time. The temple is 20 cubits, 60 cubits, 120 tall. That's pretty tall. So if I'm converting that to feet, right, 30 feet wide. And that's, just look at this room. This room is, what, 20 feet wide? So you're thinking this is actually not a very wide building. It's 90 feet long. Yeah, I mean, Brumley Hall is longer than that. The distance from the pitching mound to home plate. That's it. <laughs> and only 30 feet wide. It's a first, it's, it's a 10 yards wide. Right? It's a first down. But then it's 180 feet tall. That's pretty tall. The reason it's pretty tall is the cedars of Lebanon are these tall, tall trees. I don't know that they're 180 feet tall. I mean, that's, that's tall. Um, maybe it's helpful. The book says it was a talk of the Mediterranean world. Can I please put that to rest? It was not the talk <laughs> of the Mediterranean world. Ha has anybody been to Luxor or Karnak? That was the talk of the Mediterranean world. That's the biggest outdoor religious complex in the world still today. Enormous. With these single granite plinths out in the middle, well, I mean, next, next to the Nile, mind you, but otherwise right in the desert. It is huge. Football fields big, right? This is a first down wide and three first downs long. Okay, just put that in perspective, the scale of things. Now, it's a tall building, right? But if I asked you if the talk of the Mediterranean world was in Vermont or if it was in New York City, that's a pretty easy one to evaluate. <coughs> and that's roughly the comparison here. I don't mean the temple wasn't relatively nice, but it was only relatively nice. So how... So <coughs> People don't go in the temple, and this is a common misunderstanding that we have, right? The way the temple works is you've got this building here that is accessible, quite honestly, just to priests and Levites. It's not big, as we just talked about. It's not extremely big. And if I were to show you a road map, right, there's this building in here called the Holy of Holies, that only one person goes into one time a year on Yom Kippur, and that's the high priest. And the high priest um, goes in with a rope on his, has to be a man, a rope with a bell on his ankle in case he dies in there so that they can pull him out without going in and getting killed themselves. So going in there is real, real dangerous because if you have any blemish, including a birthmark, or a scar, God will kill you. <laughs> uh, and, and the temple's built, I mean, that's the apex of the temple. 
Outside of the Holy of Holies are these lampstands we read about called menorahs. Menorahs always have seven candles. The Hanukkah one is called the Hanukkah. It holds nine. Eight days plus one do you use to light the eight days. Right? So a Hanukkah has one, two, three, like that. It's too many. <laughs> the, the menorah just has the seven. Does this make sense? Mike, you, yeah. Is that an actual building in there? Is it, or is it just... Yeah, there's a curtain in there. There's a curtain and potentially a wall, depending how you read it. Then, the, where the menorahs are, uh, this is like where priests go. Now, there's rooms back in here that are sort of like the sacristy in the church. It's got stuff in them, you know. Um, the, the stuff you slide into the Holy of Holies is some bread, and you slide that back out. You see, you put that in God's presence, and then it's in the bread. Where do you think the Eucharist idea came from? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> But you don't go in there. You see, you just slide the bread in like on a pizza rock and then you bring it out. And in, in, in here is just for priests. And only priests go in there. And what do you know, even if you're a really good king and you go in there to burn some incense, you just committed some kind of terrible sin and God will give you leprosy. Did you notice that? Yeah. Debatable whether anybody could go in here or not. In general, what it seems is that only this kind of person, male worshipers, could sort of be around the temple court. So, helpful to know, the only way you're getting in that temple is if you're a priest, and only one of those people is going into the real deal one time a year, and that's not peaceful, that's nerve-wracking. <laughs> because God could kill you at any second. In fact, Later, later on the road, um, if people didn't like the high priest, when the high priest was walking down the street, they would cut his earlobe off, which would end his high priesthood. Because if you went in with a scar, God would kill you. Now, there's evidence that this happened, that people would cut the earlobe off. Okay? So, we just want to give you an idea of that this is sort of how the temple really works. Now, you read of some of the adornments. There are a lot of gold pomegranates. If you're Jewish, or if you're Muslim, the tree of life is not an apple. That's a Western idea. It's a pomegranate. It's a, it's a pomegranate. It's a, it, it, it reflects life and death. That's right. And that shows up in the Greek tale of uh, Odysseus and Persephone, right? She, she's the goddess of, of um, essentially the underworld. She's dead half the time and alive half the time. And that's winter and summer and there's a pomegranate seed, that's what kills her. <laughs> anyway, um, this temple, fair size, but what you need to know is the temple becomes the talk of the Mediterranean world when Herod the Great fixes it up. So, you're imagining, I mean, this is smaller than a basketball court, the, the building, in terms of the footprint. And, and the precinct around it not much bigger. When Herod the Great's done, the precinct is four football fields. And, and <laughs> it takes some work to get there because, you know, there's like Mount Moriah and then there's some other mountains around here. Mountains is a funny word, but there's some topographical diversity. And what Herod ends up doing is building these vaults 
He doesn't fill it in with dirt. He builds bridges that then support this ginormous platform. And the temple is in that, the, the, the tall building. And then there's a wall around it. And then there's a wall around here. So women could go in there. Men could go in there. And only priests went into the box. And this place where women would go, I mean, part of the reason they built this, it was like the Acropolis. Acro means high, polis as the city. This is where all the commerce happened. This was the Mall of the Americas. And it was ginormous. I mean, it really was, right? The money changing that Jesus flips over, that happens down here. You can't bring any of that money up here. So everybody who wanted to buy or sell had to change their money for a convenience fee attached. This is why Jesus gets upset because you can't even buy you can't buy pigeons, you can't buy anything unless you change your money and people are getting ripped off. I mean, that's the deal. People are making a lot of money off that holy rule just to get up there. Sacrifices happen out here in front of the building. Men could go in there, women could be out here. Now, it is true, you can read this, that supposedly the temple under Herod the Great was the eighth wonder of the ancient world because it was so big. And a few of us went to Israel, right? One of the foundation stones for those bridges weighs something like 460 tons. So that's heavier than like three 747s full of people. And no one even knows how they moved it still, how they moved the thing. You can look at it. It's, it is so big and it's way underground because, again, it's holding up a retaining arch so that they could have paved this big footprint. So we sort of get this wrong. We think, aha, you know, people went into the temple to pray. No, they did not. Priests went into the temple to pray. People stayed out of the temple. Serenity at the temple? Not really. The, the temple is really like way before there was cable and internet and all that, the, 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 the temple was the satellite dish aimed at God. So if you wanted to pray to God, you had to direct your prayer to the dish. <laughs> That's what these books are saying. You notice, pray toward the temple. Interestingly enough, right, Muslims used to pray facing Jerusalem until around... 630, and then they changed and started facing Mecca. There's, there's a reason for that, which is that Muhammad, peace be upon him, was, um, had this strong respect and um, alliance with the, the, the Jewish folks in Mecca, and then they kind of double-crossed him, and then he severed the ties, if that makes sense. But that's about temple. And, and remember, what happens at the temple is that's the place where you eat meat. You... <laughs> Did you notice that Hezekiah gives the crowd a thousand bulls to sacrifice? What he's really doing is the Roman thing of bread and circuses. He's saying, here's a bunch of meat for y'all to eat. Every meat is a sacrifice. Every animal is a sacrifice, and then you get to eat it. No butchers. That's what the Levites and the priests did. They, they, they butchered. God gets a portion. You eat off God's table. Yes, sir. Um, so, when they moved the the um, ark from the city of David, they moved it from a tent 
into this building. That's right. That's how that works. That's how that works. And so it wasn't very far physically. It wasn't. It down. wasn't very far. It was extremely close. And and I do want to remind you, and please don't be upset when they tell you this, because I. I'm not debating inspiration. The Torah says no temple. It's very clear that God tells Moses no temple. Remember we read, David says to God, I'm going to build you a temple. God says no. And then David builds, starts building the temple, essentially. And we never heard God say yes. What we hear is God's glory fills the temple under Solomon. But this is actually kind of a seam in the Hebrew Bible. Does God want a temple or not? You know, when you read the prophets, the prophets will say the temple represents iniquity. Always or just the way it's practiced? That's left, that's left to interpretation. right? Because the other thing that's interesting is it's not just that the materials had limits on construction, but do you notice that the palace is two to four times bigger than the temple? Yes. yes. So, so I hope you find that curious. Yes. They're building this house for God, but they live in homes bigger than that. There's another thing that's interesting you might miss, which is that when Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter, he has to build her her own place. Now, when you read Kings, it's clear, one Kings, which we didn't, or two Kings, we didn't read that one. It's because his house is below her standard of living in Egypt. It's not nice enough for her. When we read this one, it's because she's unclean and can't be sullying the precincts with her sort of non-Jewish presence. Either way, Notice her apartment is bigger than his palace. <laughs> because she came from New York City to Vermont. <laughs> I mean, I just want to put that, I mean, Vermont's nice, right? It's pretty outside. But New York City to Vermont. I mean, this is hopefully helpful. But do remember, Solomon and all his splendor kept that, the temple didn't have that. He had more than the temple did, both volume, area, and stuff-wise. Is that helpful? Remember the other thing that I told you that I think is really bad, um, and I, I hate to introduce any doubt, but it's helpful to know, right? Remember that David grows up in a Jebusite village, and Jebusites worship in temples. Hebrews did not. They worshiped with the tabernacle, which was a temple on wheels. Right? It was a tent. Did I answer your questions, John and Lila? <laughs> Please, it didn't have to be quick. Is the 12 oxen in the big bathtub? There's some funny bits about that, right? Because uh, if I'm right, the second, we call second commandment, says no images. But now there's 12 oxen. And I told you this, I think, last week, just really briefly that the ox or that the, um, the cow is Baal's image. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean Lord, I mean like the God, right? And what's curious is the, 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 the ox and the calf show up a lot. That's what Aaron makes on the bottom of the mountain. 
the golden calf. He doesn't say Baal took you out of Egypt. Aaron says, here's an image of the God of your God. It's a calf. <laughs> and they love the calf. I mean, that still happens in India today, right? That, that's the yes, most exactly. sacred animal is the calf. So you, sometimes we think like, oh, Middle Eastern. We really want to think East, Eastern instead of just Middle, right? So calves still have this high bit. Notice that Jeroboam, the king of the north, when they split, Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north, um, the chronicler says, you've committed idolatry because you built calves. Two. Solomon made 12. <laughs> and it becomes really interesting to think, why were two not okay, but 12 were okay? And, and I, this is going to sound bad because this comes back to inspiration. Who's writing the book? The northerners or the southerners? The answer is definitely the southerners because the northerners aren't around anymore to write it. <laughs> Why did the northerners make them? Because they couldn't go to Jerusalem. It wasn't in their territory. So they made shrines at these places in their territory where people could go. I'm not saying it's okay. I think, though, I just want to put in there why are two bad and twelve okay? I told you this last time. The temple in Tyre built to Baal, this is a scale replica of that. Also had, also had bulls with a big basin on their back. There's a funny bit here when we talk about fact and truth. When you read this, it gives you the uh, impression that pi is three. I don't know if you noticed that. Because, I, I should find this passage. Nobody noticed that? No. Where is that? Oh, man. It happens in two Chronicles. Happens right up front in two Chronicles. Well, that's not true. <laughs> I want you to know that's not true. They, they did, ancient folks did have some good, some good um, ways of representing that. Um, this is in, I think, chapter... Oh, man. I'm probably wasting your time, but as a former math teacher, this was really something <laughs> that I thought was really important. I don't know why I thought it was. Uh... No, now we all want to see it. <laughs> it's in the first five chapters. It. Oh man. Three has a lot of detail. Wings of the cherubim, blue, holy place. Well, this is embarrassing. Is it chapter 4, verse 2? The open sea is round 10 cubits brim to brim. Yeah. And 30 cubits circumference. Yeah. Yeah, it's chapter 4, verse 2. Okay. He makes the molten sea, also called the bronze sea. It's 10 cubits in diameter, and it's... 30 cubits in circumference. Well, that's not right. It's 10 cubits in diameter, so it's got a radius of 5, right? And it's got 
a circumference of 30. But we know that the circumference really should be pi times the diameter, right? So it should be 10 times pi, which is, if you don't mind me saying, like 31.4. And this is in inches, this is cubits. So this is at least two feet off. Now, we could say, Mike, you're bogging down in the details. Right, what I'm trying to show you, right, is if a, a strict reading actually gets in the way of what the Scripture is trying to tell us. You may say these were unsophisticated people. No, they were not. Absolutely not. Right? I mean, you go to Luxor or Karnak once again, and you'll see what people were making well ahead of this. And they had pi estimated to four digits. Uh, and, and, and they did it quite interestingly with these... With these uh, fractional equivalents. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Some people say, well, this is the inner diameter, not the outer. I, I mean, for the thing to be this, sorry, for the rim of the thing to be that thick is insane. Okay? I, I'm not trying to say, look, the Bible's wrong. I'm trying to point out if we, there are, there are <laughs> we make choices when we read the Bible about what it's doing for us. Is that okay to say? If it all has to be right, it's wrong. This is enormous, though. You think through, this is a basin that is, well, well, I guess it's not that enormous, but, I mean, you know, sure enough, it's, it's 15 feet in diameter. That's, that's, a, that's a big, big bowl. That's not the altar or anything like that. That's just up there. Made of bronze. That means it's really heavy. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I just, I, I probably just wasted your time. <laughs> no, I think that brings a really good quality versus quantity. I hope so. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I hope. I mean, it did for me. <laughs> so why are we reading this? <laughs> Say that again. So why, are, why is this important for us to be reading? Well, I, I, I think this is telling us, right, there came a point, and, and we still understand this today, at which, you know, part of the way in which we evaluated our, our fidelity to God is what we did in worship. And I think that's still actually very fair. I think probably the, the target on that has changed a little bit, right? I mean, again, notice, this is really not people participating. This is about what priests do at the holiest place, and people support that. I think now, though, we, we, we start to think, like, I mean, faith in God is probably, the way we worship is very important. And the question is, does that represent concern for the poor? Does that concern, I mean, does that... I think it matters what words we use, whether or not we reflect that God is inclusive or exclusive. Right? I mean, I, does that sort of make sense what I'm saying? I mean, I, part of the reason I'm an Episcopalian is because we think words matter, you know? And we think about our liturgy and how our prayer book is maybe going to be changed in the future. Should we do that or not? And, and the question is how we relate to temple worship, just quite honestly, right? I have something probably related or not to this. I, I was wondering how in Chronicles 1, we broke out in a psalm. Like, they were doing all this history, 
And then all of a sudden, we have some of the boards are just so beautiful mm-hmm. and powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it just goes back. And to then it. we don't do that again. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> is that was it added in a different time or? Don't know the answer something? to that. You can write people. You can read people that'll say that or not. Um, the question is, what's it doing in the narrative? Is probably guiding us to praise and particularly praise in a temple. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I hope that's okay to say. I Is it grew, the first time a psalm will show up that way before psalms? Well, now remember, this book, psalms are written over a couple of hundred years okay. before we, we get there in the book. This book, written certainly after 540, has a psalm in it, so which is older, the psalm or the book? The psalm is older. Even though we haven't got to the Psalms yet. Remember, this is not arranged chronologically. Right. It's arranged like thematically, if, if that makes sense. Again, it's helpful to say, what does it do to the story to have it there, I think. I know you've got other questions or reactions or comments, and I'm afraid I've... The Queen of Sheba? The Queen of Sheba. There was a lot of gift exchange going on. I mean, again, that's very, very common in an understanding of a quid quid pro quo society, one in which there's patrons and benefactors. Did I say that right? Beneficiaries. Benefactors and beneficiaries. This is a way of making an alliance without having to get married. And number one way of making an alliance is marriage, which is why Solomon marries all those people, right, to to sort of seal the deal. Because the way it works is you've got the king's daughter in your home. If he invades, he might lose his daughter. I mean, that's sort of how that goes. Because one of my questions was why do they have so many wives and so many children and so many, like, so many. Yeah. Like, he had so many... It was hard for me to fathom he had time to do anything but make children. Well, you know, or, remember, remember that his wives, he, I mean, he doesn't even have, have to have any relations with them. They're like books on his shelf. Yeah. You don't even have to read those. You just have them. <laughs> now, you have to provide for them, but he's not working. He's exorbitantly taxing people. That's yeah. how he pays yeah. for that stuff. But, but I have come back to what we were talking about earlier with the numbers of, of, of soldiers and the numbers of lambs and bulls. Same thing maybe with wives. I mean, this is a way to say, I'm really something because I have... Yeah. 900 wives is a lot, just to be honest. That's really a lot. And, 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 and part of the reason you want to think that, right, is in a city of the size of four blocks... 900 people is going to take up two of those blocks. So who else is going to live in that city? Now, now it is fair to tell you, right, cities back then are organized differently from how they are now. Now you live in a downtown and that's built up, but they don't have the technology for that. In, In the olden days, you have a walled city that's very small, and most people live outside the city, and they only come in to do their commerce here, and then they go back out and sleep in the field or in their huts. The walled city is helpful when you're getting invaded. Everybody goes in the wall, but 
that starts to overload the carrying capacity of the city. So remember, the number one way you take a city is by siege. You don't let food or water get in there. There's people chock a block in there, and they start to starve and panic, and, and that's how that works. Get mad at each other. Yeah, and then as people develop better technology, cities get bigger and bigger, and they hold more and more people, but most cities, four blocks, four blocks. Not a lot of people can live in four blocks unless you've got high-rises and you don't. <laughs> and where do 900 wives go? Well, maybe they live in the fields. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's possible. But please don't think that this marriage is anything like the one we'd like to have. But, like, that makes a lot of sense, though, what you said about if you're married to a king's daughter, he's going to think... Yeah, it's a ransom. I mean, really, you've got a hostage is what you've got. It's like invading over whatever. Now we're going to invade them, then they're going to... These people on one page are like allies. The next page, they're invading each other. It was... Like, a lot of it didn't make sense to me. Just try to warfare. Let's just go to war. Let's just... I want this, and I want that. I'm insulted by this. You know, um, and see, but don't you see that's one of the reasons why the temple becomes so important. And if you know anything about Muslim history, that's why Mecca becomes so important because Muhammad, peace be upon him, what he was able to do is say, listen, we're all one family, not the 50 million you think we are. Mm-hmm. So he was able to end tribal warfare by saying we're all in the same tribe and this is the one place we head. And this is essentially what's happening in Israel. There's 12 tribes. They don't always like each other. And David's able to say, no, listen, here's our common ground. Here's our common place of worship. We're in this together. And the temple is the icon, then, of the thing that holds them together, their religious identity. Which is why, you see, it's really bad when there's high places and other shrines because their common identity is threatened. So this isn't just a religious book about unity. This is also a cultural book. If we don't all worship together, then we drift apart and we become tribes again. You know, this is so fascinating to me. We've not traveled there, but we've been to South America a lot. The ancient peoples in South America, the Incas and the Mm -hmm. they they were doing the same things, the same things to each other, and, and the temple, when you do, then they hike him up to Machu Picchu and see where the king lived and all that. The exact same things, and it was not, well, the Catholic Church is the good stuff and bad stuff there, because it was the church that began to bring those people together, also separated them. But you know what I'm saying, it's, it's amazing how over history and different places of the world, so many people do the same thing, yeah. similar kinds of things. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, this is again how you build a kingdom. You you have a centralized place and a centralized government, and then you create a bureaucracy to go out and manage out from there, right? And that's how that's how the Persians did it as well, and they were really effective in doing that bureaucratically. What other comments or things, questions do we have? I thought there were good questions in here. Yeah, I do. Like, what is your understanding of the relationship between humility and leadership? But even more interesting is identifying causes of deterioration in the community of faith. Of course, I thought about today. That's a great question. What did you think about today? How did you answer those questions? I mean, I think that's really helpful. Well, you don't have to read it. 
What, but what are your thoughts? Accepting leaders who are not truthful and who are self-serving. You know, there's this great quote from G.K. Chesterton that I stumbled across last year and shared with you. Very few people disagree about what's evil. What we usually disagree about is what evil is acceptable. That's a paraphrase. I didn't get it, get it quite right. The deterioration I thought about in today's, uh, because when I think about me growing up and now my grandchildren growing up, they were all baptized, but they just did the sacraments of Mass on Sunday, maybe yeah. Christmas and Easter. Uh, and why? Uh, I would never, <laughs> my family would never have happened. Uh, what, what is it about society today? I'm, I'm just, I, I don't know. Uh, I'll tell you one thing that's happened with our family, and, and it's, I'm, <laughs> with our situation in our house, more people at my house, this is just a whatever, work on Sunday. Like, they have to work. They have to be where they're supposed to be. So as far as, like, worshiping together, and I'm not good about coming to church, Mike will tell you. I've got kind of on a downward thing. I wouldn't tell you that. Well, you know, but it's when I was growing up, even if you went, and this was true for families who went to church and who didn't. I grew up in Boston. Um, I knew a lot of Irish Catholics. I knew a lot of Roman Catholics, you know. And Sunday was a big family day. It was a God and family day. And nobody did anything on Sunday. Even if you didn't go to church, you spent the day with your family. And the stores were Yeah. And the stores used to be closed. And everything was closed. And no one went shopping. Yeah. And nobody went shopping. And um, I feel like there are a lot of things that have become more important to us in society than family time or worship time. It's almost like a lot of that stuff is on the back burner because we're we're trying to survive or live up to other people's expectations. We want more and more and more, or we need more and more and more. And so, um, like, there is maybe, and there are big holidays, four days out of the year where my whole family is off on the same day that we can be together. Well, and that's not true at all in my family. They, they're, they're all higher. They, they do very well financially. They would never work on a Sunday, unless Matt has an emergency surgery or something. But uh, otherwise, they're they're home, but they do choose to do other, other things. things because there's so many other things out there now too that distract yes. us, that we make important, that we prioritize. I'm not. I'll straight up tell you. I love tennis. Championship finals are always on a Sunday. That I will make that yeah. priority, and that's not a good, right? Smart. I go to mass on Sunday, on Saturday nights. But see, what you're doing is exactly that. I think what this book offers for us to do, which is. How do we establish our priorities? Yes, right. so, so let's share, right? At the temple, what happens is you watch priests do all the stuff. That's like going on Christmas and Easter. That is temple worship. And then you go home and do what you want to do. Right. Um, did the priests pray for the people or were the people required, or did the people pray as well? Yes to both, but in different functions, right? Yeah. And again, you've got priests who are mediating your your corporate sin, 
right? Or your corporate Thanksgiving. And then, but you can also go do that. So, so it wasn't people would say, oh, the priest is taking care of that for me. I don't have to worry about it. Yes and no. I mean, this is the interesting thing, right? Part of the difference that happens between later the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that the Sadducees are really worried about the temple. The Pharisees are worried about the temple and what happens when you go home. The Pharisees want religious life to inform what they do every day. That's why we had the Reformation. I mean, that's the core reason is, is it what the priests do or is it what we do? And remember, the rosary came not from on high. People demanded the dang rosary. They said, we're tired of sitting in boring services where we don't do anything. We want something to do that guides us to pray. So I think this is an interesting thing to think about. Is church for its own sake valuable, or does church offer value or not? So we could beat ourselves up for not going. The question is, does it add value inherently, or do we have to work to make it a valuable experience? And who does that work? The priest or the the folk? Or both? And, you know, I, I mean, I can tell you that there's a lot of different ways to think about this. You know, are sacraments magic or are they only magic if we think they are? <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? Or both. Sorry, both. I mean, it's not an either or. There's all kinds of levels in there. I, and I think that's a question about the temple. Is God more present in our sanctuary than God is anywhere else? Hopefully we categorically say no, and yet at the same time, there are things in our sanctuary that guide us to an awareness of that that we don't have other places. So the answer is both. You, you see how it goes, right? And when we think about church, right, the question is, what does church exist to do? I mean, I'm talking about a worship service. Is it we're giving God things God needs, or are we doing things we need? <laughs> or both? Does God need us to sing hymns? I mean, I'm, I'm a low sacramentarian. I'd say absolutely not. Do I need that? Yeah, I do. Like, I need that. I don't always need it. There's times I need it more than other times. I'll just be honest with you. The thing is, if I... Um, by going frequently, I put myself in a better position to get more of what I need than not going frequently. I exercise every day. I often don't enjoy it. <laughs> if I only did it when I enjoyed it, I would do it a whole lot less. Sometimes when I get started, I actually enjoy it when I didn't think I would. Uh, church can be that experience. Now, this is an interesting thing, right? We all enjoy different parts of things. I'm a low evangelical. That's how I grew up. So in general, I'm predisposed to put my weight on the sermon. That's what we learned was the, we didn't use the word sacrament, the sermon's not good, the whole experience is distasteful for me. (laughs) We don't prioritize that in the Episcopal Church. The priority, well, there's two. There's the liturgy of the word, and at the piece it switches to the liturgy of the sacrament. We end at the high note, which is communion. Some people say, we do it so often, it loses its specialness. 
Some people say it's special because we do it so often. You see, and this is why there's a lot of variety in this temple worship business. Notice, this is why you keep hearing the king, they keep being these high places. Some people say, look, I don't want to just go stand outside that building. I can't see what's happening. I can't be involved. I want to go somewhere. I want to go somewhere and I'm going to do something. You try stopping people from having fundamentally meaningful religious experiences. I dare you. It does not work. And notice it didn't work. That's why the king that doesn't destroy the high places, but when people go there, they're worshiping God, comes out like, okay. <laughs> Not top-notch, but that's but it's okay, you know? Because at least they're just worshiping the one God of Israel, not a bunch of other different right. gods. Right. Um, Meg asked me something, yet. Uh, sorry, I don't want to table that, but I mean, I, I think that is a really tough thing, and I think the question becomes, you know, when I first got here, somebody asked me the very first Sunday, are we going to have a contemporary worship service in the afternoon? And, and I'll tell you this still the same answer. What does that mean, contemporary? Does it mean that what we are doing on Sunday morning is antiquated and irrelevant? So we need to do something contemporary. Is contemporary a style of music or is it content of a message? Right? A contemporary service tells you by title, by title that the morning stuff is out of date and irrelevant. I think that's wrong, <laughs> by the way. I think the morning stuff is contemporary. Regardless of musical preference, right? I mean, the question is, what is music there to do? Is it meant to be emotional? Is it meant to sort of help us have this theological script? Because, of course, you remember songs much more readily than you remember words, right? I mean, we learned that in elementary school when we wanted to memorize things, you know? That's what we do. So, just helpful stuff to think about, worship in general. The leadership thing is really helpful too, right? I mean, humility. I guess it depends what we say humility is. I grew up that humility is debasing yourself utterly. I'm sorry, I'm not this. I'm really good at doing that, by the way. Um, but I had a good teacher who said humility is being exactly who God made you to be. No more and no less. Now, entitlement is not humility. No one's entitled to be the President of the United States. I'm sorry. You don't deserve that. No one deserves that. We choose that. Nobody's entitled to be a senator as much as they might think they are. I mean, that, that's a, not a democratic idea. <laughs> Leadership seems to really matter. You know, there's, and there's two kinds. We all know this. There's your positional leadership, and then there's your relational leadership, right? There's the leadership you earn, and there's the leadership you're given by your title. We know they're both important. But hopefully over time, we have relational authority and not just position. Hopefully it's not father knows best because it's, he's the priest. Hopefully it's, I, I trust that guy in areas A, B, C, because he's demonstrated that. Now in areas D and E, I might go ask a different person. Um, but I think that's natural. And probably pretty healthy. Throughout these, the readings, particularly Second Chronicles, it's 
goes from good to bad to good to bad to good to bad. And even the same people do that, right? And, and there's, yeah. a few, there's a few bits worth noting, right? I mean, um, Uzziah is a pretty good king until he thinks he's good enough to act like a priest, and then God gives him leprosy. <laughs> It's pretty high threshold of failure. You know, you know, I mean, it's not a slap on the wrist. Like, it's a, it's a terminal skin disease. Right? It's really not good. Um, to a Hebrew, to a, uh, to, 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 to a Jew, what is, why did they pick this book? Is it just the history? Or is, I, I clearly there's a message here. But, I mean, is the message different from, for us in a sense than it is not different, but what am I trying to say here? I mean, the, the Chronicler wrote this mm-hmm. for a reason. It got included in the Hebrew yeah. Bible yeah. for a reason. And it can't just be a uh, historical um, narrative. No, I mean, let's think about some of those messages. It's written around this time when the temple's been burned to the ground and people have been deported to Babylon. And what do you know? Hey, let's go back to the Golden Age. Here's how we do it. It's written to say, here's how we do that. We're faithful even when it seems inconvenient. And ultimately what this cycle is telling you is, even if things don't look good, keep being faithful and God will bless you materially. You notice it's material blessing. When your faith is right, you get money and land. You can hear that on the TV. Absolutely. And let's be honest about this. As much as we could say we don't believe in the prosperity gospel, yes, we do. Yes, we do. And if you say you don't, when something bad happens, you say, God, I didn't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? Some people are more honest about that than others. I think this book asks a question that Job is going to ask us, right? What's the value of your faith? Is that value measured in externals? Does God owe you something because you pray? If not, why even do it? I mean, these are insidious questions, and I think they're, I think they're here. I think it also asks, how are we supposed to worship? In a sanctuary? In a temple? What's that look like? The priest doing it or us doing it? What about when we leave? What are we supposed to do? Those, those questions are there. It also be that Chronicle, like in Revelations, it's to help the people at that time to 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 keep the faith. Oh yeah, again, I, I'm positive it's saying, listen, let's be faithful, and and then it'll work out for us. I, yeah. It goes on to me. It's not just the people of that time. It's it's like forever because people are are still in terms of basicness about us, we're not very different. I, 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 what I mean is what our needs and wants and all that are and mm-hmm. continue to need s- some direction and guidance from God as I mean, I think that's really fair. I, and I think these are really similar questions. Again, I, I, I would say, right, and, and, and notice that what Solomon says, if people pray to the temple for rain and in times of famine, God listened to them. I mean, Solomon's sort of saying, God, prayer needs to be an exchange. When people do it right, give them what they want. 
I so pray it's transactional. I pray like that sometimes. The question is, is God a God of transactions? I and mean, I think that's a really deep fundamental question. And, and in some ways, I think this is really important to think about Scripture. And there's really two ways in general we can think about reading. There's more than two ways, right? Is Scripture giving us a prescription for how we're supposed to live? That is, y'all pray like that. Y'all have a transactional relationship with God because God is, ulti- is the ultimate quid pro quo guy. You scratch God's back, God will really scratch yours better, right? I mean, God's the ultimate back scratcher. God's got bigger, sharper fingers than you do. So if you just do a little bit, you, you, you get more. Or, you know, there's another way that we can choose to read Scripture, which is, is it describing how we act? And should we continue to act that way? Does God give us gifts that we earn? Those aren't gifts. Those are earnings. Or does God give us stuff whether we earn them or not? That's what a gift is. You didn't earn it and you can have it anyway. Right? That, I mean, that's pretty much the standard <laughs> definition of gift. Does God give us stuff to obligate us to do stuff? That's called bribery. That's not <laughs> called gifting. No, I'm just being honest about it. Right? We think through that. Uh, and, and, I, and I think this is a bedrock question. We could say this book is prescribing, yes, God's like that. Another thing we could read it as is this is describing how we think, even when we don't think we do. And the evidence is if you ever find yourself saying he or she didn't deserve that, we think about quid pro quos. Nobody deserves to have their child get cancer. Let's just be honest about that. No one deserves that. So in a point of crisis, like your temple's been burned down, your opportunity is, oh, we better earn it back. Or the other thing is, where's God right now? And how does God's gifting work? Yeah. Read prescriptively, yes. Right? Read prescriptively, yes. The reason the exile happened is because we kept doing that. Notice when you get to Josiah, the best king ever, right? It doesn't matter how good he is, God's already hit the launch button on the nuclear missiles. And what God says is, you just won't have to see it. <laughs> You're so good, I'll wait till you die for it to happen. But it's happening. It's irrevocable. Mostly because of your, 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 your dad, Manasseh. And hopefully this is helpful to tell you. You hear about high places a lot. Maybe this is the last ending part on this geography of the temple. It's really, hopefully it's helpful. You know, Jerusalem is sort of a hill, and here's Mount Moriah, and then there's this valley here called the Kidron. Now, when you worship a god of the sky who lives up, you want to be as close to that god as you can be, so you go to high places. That's why you'd put a high place, I mean, this is um, the Mount of Olives, it's actually bigger than Mount Moriah, it's higher up. You'd put a high place here that's closer to the sky god than low, right? But if you're worshiping a god of the earth, you don't go high, you go low. 
you can tell that the people thought the God of Israel is a sky god, lives up in heaven, right? There's a couple of earth gods in the ancient Near East, and they're all really the same one. Um, three different names, though, according to which tribe is worshipping. Chemosh, Milcom, or Molech. They're earth gods, so you worship them in the bottom of the valley. You're trying to get as close to the earth as you can get. And there's this... You, know, you want to talk about some, some quid pro quo thinking. You give God your most valuable possession, and then God will give you, in return... Something great. Now, if you give God something of lesser value, you get a lesser return gift. What's your most valuable possession in the ancient Near Eastern world, according to the book of Ruth? Your firstborn son. So, the way you do this, quid pro quo, I mean, this is to an extreme. You kill the child, you kill your firstborn son, Offer it to God, and God's obligated to give you God's best. You gave your best, now you get God's. You may say, Mike, that is terrible. Please notice, that's the logical conclusion of quid pro quo. You give your best thing, God has to give you the better return. Josiah's dad does this. His name's Manasseh. He passes his firstborn child through the fire. Please, that doesn't mean that he just kind of swooped him through. It means he burned him alive. You burn up people to the earth, God. And that's why Israel is going to be destroyed. Or Judah, rather. Judah's going to be destroyed because Manasseh, Manasseh does this. He does it down here outside Jerusalem at the bottom of the Kidron. Interestingly enough, Meg asked me about this yesterday. With all those sacrifices, there had to be a lot of blood. Jewish people can't drink the blood. Other people would do that, right? African people still do that today. The Maasai drink blood out of living animals and they close it up, right? Because it's got all kinds of vitamins and nutrients in it. Hebrew people can't. They have to drain it all. <laughs> Where's it going to go when you kill the animals up here? It just goes down here to the bottom of the Kidron, which is another place where you burn your trash. They don't have landfills. What kind of trash do they have? You, you know, old pottery shards and old clothes, etc. The bones of the animal. You put all the refuse down there in the valley because you're worshiping the sky god. So how funny. One person's sanctuary is another person's trash heap. All the blood goes down there, and this place outside Jerusalem is called the, the Gehinnom, which is the Valley of Hinnom. That's what it means. This is where the Greek word Gehenna comes from, which your Bible translator calls hell. I have geographically been to hell. And this is a really important thing, not just about factuality, but let's think how the fact informs the truth. Hell is where you burn your firstborn child because you think God accepts that. It's an interesting theological claim, isn't it? <laughs> wow. And also that's where they threw a lot of the kings that tore down... Um, poles and all of that other stuff. Where they burn Asherah poles. Yeah, you got it. Oh, down in there too. Two, 
two other really interesting bits because I still have two more minutes. One is you read about an Asherah pole. That's a phallic symbol. It's going into the ground to the earth god. That's what it is, trying to create fertility. Or it's going up into the sky. It depends whether your god is in the sky or the ground. Either way, it's a phallic symbol. People had them everywhere. Some people put them in the temple and then they had to pull them out. The other thing that's interesting, you've probably all seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And there's these beautiful winged angels called cherubim on top. And it is helpful to know that that is not what a cherubim looks like. (laughs) You can read a description in the book of Ezekiel if you'd like. A cherubim has four faces. An ox face, a lion face, a human face, and an eagle face. And it's covered with eyeballs. (laughs) So that's not how those look. And they have six pair of wings. Or three pair. Two that they fly with. Two that they cover their face with, but they have four, so they must be wraparounds. And two that they cover their feet with. Because you don't go before God with your genitals uncovered. You may say, but that's not how it looks in the movie. It isn't. That's how people thought that it looked. There's seraphim too. Seraphim, you've heard of these before. Those are like flying snakes that are always on fire. <laughs> you don't see that iconographically because you think about cherubs Raphael painted in the Sistine Apartments. They're fat babies. But um, that's not how the ancient Hebrew people depicted this. They didn't think that they were monsters. Notice that the, they had all the properties of the eagle and the lion and the ox and the human being. And they had eyes everywhere. And Did they literally? Or is that to say they could see all the different ways at the same time? So again, when you think about our temples comforting or in some ways disturbing, it's a good question. Do we go to church only to be comforted or is part of the liturgy meant to disturb us out of the practices, frankly, that are idolatrous? Mm-hmm. Depends who you ask. And what's your pain threshold? How often can you go to church and hear we're doing the wrong thing corporately before you say, oh, I'm just tired of that. I just, you know, I need some rest. It's a great question to ask, don't you think? The disturbing part, uh, I guess I don't understand. <coughs> I, I think of it uh, as a place to uh, think about my life. It's a place where I stop mm-hmm. and ponder and question myself. Uh, but that's not disturbing as much as it is dis- mm. <laughs> but maybe it could be disturbing I've had both I've been to church and left thinking I've really got to change usually I think though I've got to change or I'm going to make God real mad which is this way of thinking instead of God if I change my life I could bring a lot more joy to other people and myself <laughs> 